Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief Film Critic. Not joined this week with uh, my usual sparring partner, Ann Thompson, from Thompson and Hollywood, who's somewhere south of the border, I think in Colombia, exploring the the wilds of, of that place, and, and hopefully we'll make it back in one piece for, for next week's recording. But uh, we figured we'd open it up this time, and I'm really thrilled to have Sam Adams from CriticWire, CriticWire blog attached to the CriticWire network, uh, joining us to talk about stuff this week. Sam's a, a great writer who also contributes to the LA Times, to the Dissolve, all kinds of other places. And you're just coming back from True-False, Sam. So tell us how that went for you. Um, it went great. This is my third year at True-False, which, um, for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, is a, a relatively small uh, four-day documentary film festival in Columbia, Missouri. Um, it's gotten a significant amount of cachet in the last, I guess, I would say several years, maybe maybe seven or eight at this point. Mostly I started hearing about it from filmmakers, from documentary filmmakers who were just coming back from this little college town in, in Columbia, Missouri, talking about what an amazing time they had and, and not just that it's a really you know, convivial place and fun and that the town really gets behind it, but just that the, the festival was a really kind of welcoming environment for them. It was somewhere that they kind of went to connect with their peers, um, mostly outside the glare of the, uh, the media spotlight, although there's been more coverage in the last several years. The festival has started um, bringing journalists, including myself, for the last three years in to cover the festival, um, which never hurts. Um, the thing is, is that even, even sort of figuring that in, it's one that people are really eager to go back to. You know, it's a lot of, uh, it's a small festival, as I said, it's about 40 features this year split into a couple different strands. They're not really focused on premieres. About a third of the lineup came from Sundance this year. Some of the movies go back at least as far as, as can from last May. But there's a real sensibility driving it. It has a, a kind of curated feel to it. The movies tend to be driven more by aesthetics than subject matter, which is, you know, to say you don't have a lot of the, the po-faced uh, issue documentaries that sometimes clog the lineup in other festivals. Um, and, you know, they, they, there's somebody there at every screening from every film to talk about the movies with a really enthusiastic and open audience. And it's a great place to see documentaries and to just kind of be around some of the most interesting documentary filmmakers who are, who are working today. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the degree of cult-like admiration that this festival inspires among, you know, a close-knit group of people kind of reminds me of the Telluride fervor. Although, like what you're describing with True False, you know, the more and more something becomes this cool secret that a lot of people have discovered, the more institutionalized it gets. And so I guess... You know, what's been interesting seeing with Telluride is that, you know, because it's a fall festival, because they have great access, and a certain number of people with influence in the film world really love it, it's now become, you know, sort of part of the system rather than sort of the scrappy outsider. And it's, it sounds to me like what I'm picking up on is True-False is, is trying to avoid that, and yet at the same time is very much, you know, becoming a bigger deal, at least in the documentary film world. You know, and I've noticed in the last year even that there are bigger brands really interested in in the doc scene you know that netflix is throwing a lot of money around not only releasing movies but you know sponsored the cinema eye awards this year and things like that and i wonder if you saw when you were at true false i mean did it seem like it was bigger or you know like was there more of an industry (laughs) presence 
Um, I don't know if there was more of an industry presence, but I mean, there are definitely more and sort of journalists and from some bigger um, publications this year. Um, uh, just the people out from uh, Variety and Grantland, both for the first time. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was there. I mean, they've the festival's always been. Or part of what it does is kind of bring new or sort of documentary filmmakers who are early there, early in their career, together with people in the industry. They have a, what they call kind of a swami program. They have a lot of kind of fun names for things. Um, so they'll bring them together with um, publicists and uh, distributors, people from from HBO, and and um, and kind of give them you know a bit of a more secure footing. You know, the, the industry presence that was there this year tends to be – I mean, there were parties thrown by places like Sundance Now and Oscilloscope. So there's some industry presence, but it's still not like the big guns are coming out. Uh, you mentioned that it's becoming a big deal in the documentary world, and I think that that's, um, that's true or, or bigger even because, like I said, I've been hearing about it for a while. But that in the documentary world clause is pretty important because it's right. still you know pretty – sort of small area to very small piece of the pie for any sort of major, you know, entertainment media conglomerate. Right. And and it's, you know, taking place in a small college town that's a two hour drive from St. Louis. So I think some yeah. of that protects it from a certain amount of overkill. I don't I don't see it becoming you know completely whatever corporatized or sold out. I mean maybe uh People would have said, "Well, you know, how many people are ever going to come up to this tiny little mountain ski resort to watch movies thirty um, odd years ago, whenever Telluride started?" So right. that's you know that's that's possible, but um, just because of in, in part because of the nature of the films and because they're really not, you know, I think they're they're careful in the programming to really spread things around and not. They're, they're not sort of snobbish about showing movies with mass appeal or movies that have distribution. I mean, this is the only time a lot of these movies are going to show in Colombia, whether or not they they have distributors. You know, some of them are there, you know, as at any documentary film festival, there are movies that are kind of just making a pit stop there on their way to HBO in a couple of weeks, um, both going clear and the first five of six parts of the jinx were there this year um there were at least a couple hbo other hbo things that are slipping my mind but they don't let it get weighed down i mean they're, they're, it's it's a to use a kind of college radio word i thought the programming remains pretty eclectic in a very commendable way well and also i mean what's what i think it's interesting about true false just watching it from afar and being familiar with a lot of stuff that's there is that like you said, I mean, it seems to provide sort of an alternative perspective on what this art form should be. In other words, it's like pushing an alternative perspective on the kinds of movies that should be celebrated in the documentary uh, medium. You know, Anthony Kaufman writes this column for us, Reality Checks, and he took Sundance to task to some degree for its documentary program for, for sort of foregrounding a lot of more traditional kind of movies. I mean, especially... Things like you mentioned going clear, you know, sort of fall into this very familiar bucket in which, you know, talking heads and, you know, Alex Gibney and like just certain kind of like signifiers that that feel very kind of safe insofar as what your expectations are for what a documentary should or shouldn't be. Whereas, you know, there are other kinds of things that I know have played there in the past that are challenging that or sort of operating outside of that. And, you know, their relationship to realities is different than, than say, you know, just sort of 
following every beat to make someone feel very comfortable with the fact that they're watching a documentary. I mean, this movie that I saw at IDFA, which I know was, uh, I believe, a secret screening at True False later called Don't Leave Me, uh, was a a Dutch documentary about two Belgian alcoholics in in the woods. Uh, It was just, like, this incredible kind of, like, buddy comedy that just so happened to be a documentary. Like, I remember hearing that was at True False, and I was like, I'm glad that somebody in the U.S. is giving that kind of placement to this movie and seeing it that way. Or, or last year was something like Approaching the Elephant. Elephant. Like these, these verite movies that don't feel like they need to, you know, pander to expectations in any particular way. So what, what were some of the movies this year that you felt like sort of synced up with that sort of sensibility. Well, well one of the favorite things I saw is, is a really kind of fascinating short documentary with 40 minutes long, which right just based on that fact makes it almost undistributable um, called Jeff embrace your past, which is about the artist Jeff Coons, who if you were ambulatory in the early nineties, you may remember um, was a kind of huge sensation in the art world. And then a huge sensation among people who think that the art world is ridiculous um, because he would do things like put a bunch of Hoover vacuum cleaners in a plexiglass case, light it up with fluorescent lights and, call it a commentary on society. He, one of his best-known pieces involves two basketballs suspended in a fish tank. Uh, and then he later married an Italian porn star and took pornographic pictures of them having sex and kind of blew them up to wall size and did kind of blew out all the colors, made them sort of super saturated, and then you know presented those. So this is a movie that was kind of shot in the early 90s, I believe, has been around... I mean, the footage has obviously been around forever. I think it was completed in 2011. They almost showed it last year. There was some sort of legal action <laughs> involved. And then it kind of finally made it out this year. The, I think the title is partly a, a kind of perhaps a friendly suggestion to Jeff Koons that he should just let this movie about him, you know, almost you know, 20-odd years ago come out. But it's, it's really kind of hilarious, very inventive uh, movie about – about Coons, about the sort of the vicissitudes and, and excesses of the art world. And it, it's, you know, at the same time, it's not trying to make any grand statement. It's very funny. There's a scene at the end where Coons's father is interviewed in the men's room of this art show that he's having, and the camera's positioned basically right behind the swinging door into the bathroom. So you constantly see people are constantly coming in. The door is kind of coming towards the camera, and you see the filmmaker's hand kind of reaching out to, you know, prevent himself getting smacked in the face with a door and the interview just goes on for this, you know, three or four or five minute shot. Um, It's very smart, very funny. And the kind of thing that it's hard to see another festival necessarily getting behind a ton. Um, There was also a movie there this year called Almost There, which was one of my favorites. And it's a good illustration of why it's true false. And I think, sort of, you know, whatever you want to call them, smaller festivals or, you know, regional festivals or things that aren't driven by premieres are important. This is a movie that I, I believe premiered in October in the Chicago Film Festival. I know it showed at the at Big Sky in Montana in January. So it's been around for five, six months. I frankly had never heard of it before. I knew that um, Kartemkunu Films, the Chicago um, kind of documentary collective behind it had a movie, A True False, so I was interested to see it. And it turned out to be this really wonderful movie about these two filmmakers who find this elderly 
street that's kind of elderly outside outsider artist doing portraits at a pierogi festival in East Chicago, Indiana. They follow him back to his home, which turns out to be the completely sort of appallingly really virtually almost collapsing basement of his family home that filmmakers can't even go down there when they first get there because the stench is so bad they have to come back with with respirators on so they they take an interest in this guy they help find a better place to live they get his art at a, a sort of outsider they get him a show at this gallery that specializes in outsider art and then Things get really complicated. They spent eight years shooting it. It was clearly kind of a passion project for them. And his him being in the public eye, him these two strangers taking an interest in him actually ends up causing a lot of problems for everyone involved. And it becomes this kind of fascinating study in unintended consequences. It reminded me in a way of the movie Finding Vivian Meyer last year, which ended up getting nominated for an Oscar. Um but had some really kind of gnarly ethical issues that the film never quite dealt with and that it's about uh, the one of the co, co-directors he discovered this treasure trove of black and white photographs by this woman, Vivian Meyer, who had worked her whole life basically as a nanny, had never exhibited the, the pictures or really shown much of a sign that she wanted them to be exhibited. Um, so then he, John Maloof, co-directed the film, took the photos, kind of cleaned them up, put them out there. They became – they were amazing photos. Um, they became kind of a huge sensation. He gets a cut of all the sales. And here he is kind of making this documentary that in some ways is also kind of a promotional vehicle for this art that he directly profits from the sale of. And the film doesn't really – come to terms with that. I think almost there is, it's a lot in common with other movies. Um, Grey Gardens is, is one of them. Um, well, that's interesting to bring up since the news of Albert Mazel's death must have come up like a nuclear bomb in the middle of the weekend there, huh? Yeah, it was, I talked to someone who, um, I believe it was AJ Schnock who directed um, Caucus and mm-hmm. um, has been kind of a, a what do I say, kind of a, just a sort of leading figure in the documentary scene for years. I think uh, Friday morning he got up, he saw Joshua Oppenheimer's Look of Silence and then found out that Albert Mazels had died. And that was just a, a pretty severe one-two punch. Well, that's pretty interesting also because, you know, whereas The Act of Killing was not remotely really a verite movie, there you could almost see Look of Silence being like a Mazels film. I mean, there's something... The, the reminiscent of Gimme Shelter almost to, to the way in that movie you have this guy watching footage for much of, uh, for a lot of the movie. It's a much bleaker angle because he's watching footage of people talking about torturing uh, relatives of his in the 1960s. But uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's like Richard Brody made this really interesting point that, you know, that Maisel's uh, impact can be felt in films that, have been made over the generations and also movies that haven't been made yet, you know, and it's like everywhere you look in, in the documentary world, you see sort of reverberations of the kind of filmmaking that him and, that he and his brother pioneered. You know? Right. Well, there was a very, very interesting coincidence that Oppenheimer was there um, in Columbia, Missouri, technically a day before the festival started. There's a, an academic conference called Based Upon a True Story that's kind of grown up around the festival at the um, University of Missouri Journalism School. So he was doing a, kind of the centerpiece of that was this hour and a half long conversation with Joshua Oppenheimer, and he, who is kind of 
took some shots at the, the the not even the aesthetic, but kind of the idea of of the fly on the wall, and saying you know there are people who who would argue that if you spend long enough in front of someone with a camera, they'll just forget it's there, and that he called that notion kind of idiocy. And it was an, interesting to have that out there before Maisel's died because Al Maisel's was kind of one of the people to really put forward that idea, and I think the most poetic and um in passionate way but it's if you watch a movie like Grey Gardens you see that it is not or or Gimme Shelter as you mentioned those are not movies about the camera disappearing at all they're very much movies about what the camera does about the the concert and Gimme Shelter being staged um in part to be filmed certainly about the Big and Little Edie's relationship with the Maisel's brothers and their their interest in, in performing for them so yeah there is that I think there is more more overlap with the look of silence um, then you might necessarily see it for Splush. Well, also, one thing that I was thinking about, and I wanted to write about this, and I just couldn't, you know, it was partly a timing issue, but also just had by the time it seemed like I could figure out a way to do that, it, it was sort of like the world had spoken, and, and there was just so much Maisel stuff, and just sort of jumping on the bandwagon at the end of the show felt like maybe a little bit out of sync with the way things were going, but I still would like to get it out there, which is the idea of Maisel's, Albert Maisel's in the last, like, 20 years or so, I would say kind of became this rock star in the documentary community and totally loved it in this kind of, like, adorable old man way. But, like, you know, the the cinemas this year, they had they announced Best Film, which went to Citizen Four. Uh, it was, uh, the presenters were Albert Maisel's and D.A. Pennybaker, who, at the time, I think, made a perfect case for why they should have their own sitcom. I mean, they were just, like... <laughs> amazing to have the kind of banter they had. I mean, it took them forever to kind of get around to announcing it, uh, the winner, and then they kind of got it wrong. And, and it was just, so, there was something kind of like adorable about that because they were so real. But at the same time, you know, the, they got a standing ovation and they're responsible for these iconic works of cinema that really helped define the art form in the second half of the 21st century or the 20th century. And And I thought there was something really interesting about the, the personality element in play there. I went to see uh, Grey Gardens in its new uh, restoration at Film Forum on Friday night. Um, made a last-minute change of plan because I was going to see the opening for Rendezvous with French Cinema in Lincoln Center, and, and it just seemed like the, the movie that was opening that series was going to be around, and, and whereas Grey Gardens, of course, is always around, it, the opportunity to sort of see it in this context was once in a lifetime. So, you know, it was pretty right. much a packed house. Criterion's Peter Becker gave a very emotional speech at the beginning where he was sort of teary-eyed and, you know, he told me afterwards that they kind of knew he was on the way out the last few weeks he had been ill, but were in denial about it. And I remember seeing him, you know, at that cinema event earlier and just, like, loving all the attention. And one of the things that kind of brings up to me is, you know, you mentioned A.J. Schnack. I mean, there's a, the doc scene, I think, attracts stronger personalities to some extent, than the rest of the film community. I mean, you can you see people who go out to stu- you know do work on studio projects, and to a large degree, that kind of possibility consumes someone's personality. You know, at least in the public sense, because you know it's more you have diplomacy becomes a bigger part of the job. I mean, you just don't hear about a lot of studio filmmakers who do things publicly or develop very public personalities. It's very difficult. To do that, and and I think that the documentary scene 
allows for a different kind of like freedom of expression that's sort of wedded to the to the way that these kinds of movies are made that's very interesting and also as a journalist creates you know different kinds of challenges because i think you you probably agree with me on this but but i'd be curious to hear your thoughts you know there's a certain value in associating with these personalities and getting to know them so you can better understand sort of why they do what they do and, and on some level that also enhances the way that you can appreciate their work and I'm bringing that up because there was an interesting piece that, that uh, you ran on the blog this week riffing on something that uh, Nick Pinkerton wrote about sort of critics and objectivity and it's an interesting kind of challenge that I think a lot of people don't necessarily fully understand when they're just you know processing uh, you know various kinds of reports and, and reviews and so forth reflecting the scene, which is that there is sort of a, a breaking down of barriers between the relationship between the media and the content creators. It's sort of essential for the community as a whole. You know, it's like if we weren't allowed to know filmmakers, then on some level we wouldn't be able to do the jobs that we need to do. Right. Does that square with your thinking? Yeah, no, I think that's that's an excellent point. I mean, when I when I started, when I got into the business in the late '90s, um, one of the very first people I met was uh, Kenneth Turan from the LA Times. We went to the same college, and he was nice enough to have lunch with a 24 year old um, nobody <laughs> at that point. Um, and one of the things he told me was that you know he said you know I don't like to discuss a movie after I've seen it until I've written about it and I don't. And he told me, he's like, I don't do interviews because he wanted to stay removed from the people who, who make films and be able to be totally objective about them. And, you know, the paper has people to do interviews and they have pay people to do reviews and never the twain shall meet. And uh, there are a few people like that who can still just do reviews, but the the business has changed so much that everybody kind of pitches in with everything now. And and you know, I, I think there are probably not a lot of, lot of critics who don't do any interviews. There are maybe feature people who don't do do so much criticism. But I think there's definitely overlap, and I think that that is, is by and large a good thing. I mean, it's possible that you you know develop a personal relationship with someone, and then you can't really stick the knife in like you might be inclined to otherwise right. but I, I think as i as I wrote in the piece i've never heard a filmmaker complain about critics being too close to filmmakers it's always if anything you hear the opposite you know they don't really understand you know what goes into the the process you know they don't kind of understand the, the sacrifices involved and the the everything that, that goes into it. So I think that you can learn a lot just from, you know, knowing the people, knowing, you know, how long they spend on things and what they mean to them. And, and I don't know that that, I suppose in some ways it may compromise your quote unquote objectivity, but I think it's also, you know, so does, so does information. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, I mean, you're learning more about it, and that I mean that does change the way you look at movies to some extent. But that's, the, I think that's because you're better informed. It is a hilarious part of of life itself, where where uh, Richard Corliss talks about Roger Ebert's association with uh, various people, and he was writing about, and, and Corliss said that you know he preferred to think of all the people he was writing about as fictional characters, you know, and I was sort of like. If they were all fictional characters, you know, you're basically just, like, creating a fantasy life, you know? It's like, 
you, you, if you put yourself in a complete bubble, then you're not actually engaging with these real cultural objects that, that exist in the world and, like, have, like, this very influential identity that, you know, you yourself, you know, have something to say about, you know? It's like, it seems counterintuitive on someone to pretend that they aren't connected to actual individuals who are doing things, you know? Uh, and actually, I mean, it's, it's funny to use this transition, but I think in some ways it is actually relevant to the, the, the Twitter shitstorm related to uh, <laughs> Ghostbusters earlier this week. You knew I was going to bring that one up. But, I, yeah. but you know, it's like, I, on the one hand, I sympathize with people who, uh, you know, have a job to do and also maybe on some level seriously care about uh, this franchise that was created way back in the day. I mean, whether or not Ivan Reitman is, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch in disguise or, or actually has, like, some real uh, creative agency, you know, with respect to the future of the story, I, I don't know. But, I mean, I, I do think, you know, some people care about making good Ghostbusters movies if they're going to do them. I mean, the idea that Bill Murray's never wanted to be involved because it didn't seem like a good idea, it's kind of interesting. But then when you think about it, I mean, I think if you were to talk to individual people involved in, you know, the the motivating factors behind, you know, building a Ghostbusters world, which is what these headlines say, you know, is, is going to happen, that that there's this this ghost core, uh, which is like some new initiative yes. on the on the Sony lot to, to the expanded the, Ghostbusters universe, the universe like yes. the Star Wars of, of the Ghostbusters world. I mean, there, there there must be there must be some real thinking behind this from somebody who who has you know at least a grain of a, a good idea. I'm not I'm not saying that it's necessarily a good idea. In fact, it's it sounds like it's a, a real waste of money and resources, but you know, it's not like you just snap your fingers and it happens. I mean, this is obviously something that Sony and, and various people involved have been trying to get off the ground for years. So, I mean, my feeling about, you know, sort of the the fury associated with this thing is to some degree, it's, it's really colored by an incredibly misleading amount of nostalgia for the original property, you know? And yes. frankly, I mean... That's that's exactly why it's happening is is because people have such a strong relationship to this brand and it would be bad business for them not to do something with it, right? I mean, no brand is too sacred for a corporation not to mess around with. Yeah, it's, I mean, I have mixed feelings that are pale in comparison to an overwhelming feeling of apathy with right. regard to the whole thing because it's just... We're, we're arguing about Ghostbusters of now. Of course, this, this is what we're do doing that. with our. Yeah. This is what we're doing with our Twitter time. Yeah. You know, it's not like the original movie was some. You know, this is not a. It's not a, Eisenstein. Yeah, it's not a sequel to Days of Heaven. You know, <laughs> the original was a commercial property. The sequels, however many of them, or reboots, or whatever the hell you want to call them, that get made, will not be either. I mean, I certainly don't. I'm not crazy about the idea that, and it's not even the chronology is not even entirely clear. And I, I would fall into a deep narcoleptic sleep if I tried to do too much research on the subject. But it, the, the idea that the this kind of all female Ghostbusters reboot, which is definitely going forward, is now being undermined by this, you know, all male reboot, remake, offshoot, whatever it is, um, is. You know, kind of 
not an idea that I'm crazy about. I'll, I'll put it that way. Well, now you're wading into the same kind of gender politics that, that my, my usual sparring partner, Ann Thompson, brings up, which is, you know, it's a male-driven male industry, and, and, you know, this is just sort of slapping down any kind of notion of a more progressive, you know, studio product. But, you know, it, the news also comes in the wake of, of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey making boatloads of money overseas, and, and clearly there is, like, a huge audience for this kind of stuff. I mean, it is possible that this story was not reported quite entirely right because there were little bits and pieces leaking out to some degree. And I, I what I would say is, you know, if anything, what is least surprising about it is, is the, the idea that, you know, a studio that's only worried about the bottom line w- would basically think in terms of, of dividing its product in terms of its demographics. You know, like, oh, there's an undervalued or underserviced uh, audience for, for female-driven uh, storylines. So let's do a, a female Ghostbusters. But we should also have the, uh, you know, the male part, the male counterpoint. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it, I guess, like, I, I would agree if it feels very familiar and also just sort of, like, on, on some level, inevitable. I mean, what... what right. I mean, the thing that... The, the, the one part of it I find kind of truly irksome is the idea, and again, I don't know if this is exactly true, but the, certainly the it appears as if they're, they announced this all-female Ghostbusters. Um, a certain segment of, let's call it babies on Twitter um, went apeshit over this because girls were being led into the Ghostbusters clubhouse and we can't have that. Um, right. And then, then they announced this one, oh, but it's okay. No, we're actually going to have one with Vince Vaughn and Channing Tatum and you're going to be okay. And, and it certainly gives the appearance of Sony kind of basically caving into a bunch of whiners on Twitter. Uh, and I really don't um, – I have a five-year-old, and that's the kind of behavior we try not to encourage in my house. So right. I would I appreciate it if America's Movie Studios could hold themselves to the same standard. I was saying, you know, my only tweet, when I, and I only got around to it about a day later with respect to all this stuff, is that I'd love to see a Slimer spinoff. Because, look, if you think about it, Slimer is kind of asexual. So, you know, you can kind of, you can almost have it both ways if you, if you focus on the character that's most uh, of the moment, you know. You're going to build out that universe, you know. I would like to see like an like an equivalent of the others where you think you're watching this kind of gothic <laughs> domestic drama and then and then in the last five minutes the camera kind of turns upside down and it turns out that you've been watching like the other side of maybe even the first Ghostbusters movie the whole time that I would that I would pay money to see if someone didn't blow the gimmick for me like I just did. But. Yeah, like basically uh, a David Lynch <laughs> kind of like disorienting nightmare of sorts in which the ghosts actually win. You yes. Know? <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see Stanley Kubrick's Ghostbusters. That's obviously not going to happen. We should probably shift to our picks for the week. Uh, there's actually uh, a movie opening this week that I know you're, you're, you're keen on, and, and I like it quite a bit as well, that is on some level maybe an alternative to Ghostbusters. If, if you want to see a, a ghostly movie, do you want to uh, talk about that one? Sam? Yeah, I would definitely I would, I would uh, recommend a movie called It Follows. It's coming out this week. It is, um, I, guess, I guess we can safely call it a horror movie and has been uh, kind of linked a little bit with last year's The Babadook in terms of being a horror movie that kind of relies much more on mood and uh, kind of practical effects rather than, um, I don't know, sort of you know found footage gimmicks or exorcisms or any of that stuff. It, it is um, 
the it in the title is never really explained what it is. It's some sort of vaguely sexually transmitted paranoia slash demon that uh, eventually starts pursuing this teenage girl played by Mega Monroe. And uh, she is, and the deal is that if you have sex with someone, you can pass it on to them. But then if they die, it comes back to you. Comes back to you, and then eventually, if it catches up to you, it breaks you into tiny little pieces, and then I guess goes off to the last person before you, and then tries to kill them, too. Uh, so it it is as a synopsis, it sounds somewhat schematic and a little bit ridiculous, but it's basically a kind of crash course in ambient discomfort. You're basically afraid of this thing that you never really see. It will kind of take on the, the inhabit the bodies of other people, but you never find out what it is. There are these kind of long 360, 720 degree pans around where you literally see nothing at all, and yet they're absolutely kind of mesmerizing and terrifying. There is just a little bit, for me, it feels a little bit like a kind of horror movie slash art project. It doesn't have quite as the same emotional impact for me as, as the Babadook did last year. But it is really kind of fascinating and relieving to see someone taking the horror genre, which has been such a kind of interesting, technically experimental place throughout its career, but has been really overwhelmed with this kind of schlocky, schlocky studio garbage the last however many years kind of going going back to its roots in a way and trying something that uh, is more just driven by kind of pure terror rather than the uh, the need to leave the door open for It Follows 2. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it, it takes the jump scare to another level of artistry. You know, it's like we've we've all been there before with the, those, like, sudden moments that make you jump out of your seat. And, I mean, it's so blatantly manipulative it's it's like it, it feels like a you know a few buttons are being pushed as opposed to a story being told but in this case they seem sort of threaded into the story in a different kind of way that sometimes that i would agree is like maybe a little too much but at the same time like the the underlying premise is sort of wedded with this notion of of growing up into to a world you can't fully understand you know like they're they're creeping into the to the ominous realm of adulthood and and all these different things are bubbling up from their past and they don't totally comprehend what's going on around them and i just i love that running motif of people slowly walking towards you that nobody else can see because it's so fundamentally terrifying you know it carries the movie through through you know some of the slower parts and stuff like that so it's um, it's interesting to think about that one in, in relation to what we were talking about because it's just, I mean, it's a much more innovative way to do things that on some level we may have seen before, if that makes sense. Yeah, in a, in a way it's kind of taking what's subtext in other movies and just making it text here. I mean, it is in some ways, people have tried to interpret, oh, it's a movie about, you know, AIDS or STDs, or the, and in some ways it's just kind of a movie about fear. Yeah. You know, and, and that sometimes the scariest fear is one that you can't, you know, you feel like there's somebody in the room with you or there was something across the street and you look and there's nothing there and there's no explanation for that. And that can be the most terrifying thing of all. Yeah. No, it, it's uh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that really foregrounds the, the sensorial 
the element above all else. And speaking of fear, the the movie that I would pick as a new release this week is is one that I've touched on in this podcast in the past when it's played at a couple of festivals, but it's finally opening. It's called Seymour, an introduction. It's the documentary feature debut of uh, Ethan Hawke, who directed this movie about um, a man named uh, Seymour Bernstein, who was a concert pianist in the 50s and 60s, was considered sort of this prodigy of sorts, and then developed stage fright, and after a rave review in the New York Times, never played another show, uh, instead funneling his talent into teaching, which he continues to do. Um, very peculiar character, this this sage-like man with, with an incredible way of, of sort of explaining the, the wisdom behind what he does, but, um, you know, at the same time, there's something kind of uh, limited in terms of his relationship to the world. He's lived in the same apartment for 50-something years or, or more, and, um, you, you know, just like a lot of his past is, is murky to some degree, and uh, it's really interesting to sort of tussle with sort of his his personal identity and his way of seeing the world and the way that he shares that with other people. But what's interesting about it is that Hawk doesn't create a vanity project, but he does manage to build in his, his own persona to some degree uh, in terms of how it complements the themes of the movies. Uh, the, there, he talks a little bit about sort of his own creative desire and sort of gaining something from hearing this man speak about why it's important to sort of continue to pursue the things that, that you know, make you feel passionate about, about your work. And so on, on some level, it, it does seem to complement the way that Ethan Hawke's been working lately. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's worth checking out for, for anybody who's, uh, who's been watching what he's been up to lately. I mean, it's, in, on some level, it gives you a sense that, that boyhood was as much sort of, uh, you know, the apotheosis of, of, of Ethan Hawke's career as it was for Richard Linkletter. So um, it's, not, it's not exactly what I would call a sequel to Boyhood, but it is complementary on some level to the creative ambition on display there. So I hope people go check that one out. So we are heading into South by Southwest territory. When um, this podcast comes back next week, I'll be chatting with Anne about movies that we've seen out there, which range from relative obscurities, a bunch of stuff I've seen already that's, uh, you know, pretty good, some of it not so good, and you'll hear about both of those. And um, there'll be some bigger things, like the Judd Apatow uh, movie Trainwreck. And um, Sam, you won't be at South by Southwest, but I assume you'll be following it from afar. I will be keeping track of it on Critic Wire and eagerly waiting to see what you and the rest of the crew have to say about what's going on down there. Yeah, you won't be able to escape it, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that, true enough. Thanks for joining us. All right, thank you. Everybody knew you as the wife of a famous man. Everybody who knew said, there goes Dixon's girl again. Even the walls are closed. When she plays the